So take a look at the picture behind me. That was actually created by AI. I told AI, I said, create me an image of a man walking his son through the woods into the light. And that's what it gave. Now, AI is very interesting. It could be used for good, but I don't know if you heard, but there is AI Jesus. AI Jesus. It runs 24-7, 365. You can go there and you can ask it all kind of questions. What I thought was terrifying was a man logged on and he asked it a question and AI Jesus says, oh, I remember you. And I'm like, oh boy. That's where it gets terrifying. Because what the world wants to do is rewrite your Bible in its own image. And it can use AI to do it. Larry's um, actually keeping up on that more than I am because he is a tech nerd and I am an automotive nerd. So, <clears throat> so it was just interesting. Um, I really enjoyed uh, having it make pictures for me. Some of the uh, pictures on my YouTube channel were made with AI. So I'm going to keep trying it, and if it does it right, then great. And if it doesn't, I'm like, you're out. So what does it mean to be a son? What it means to be a son? And we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Uh, I just really thought I was uh, listening to Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler. He's uh, with the Lord now. And he has a series on YouTube uh, through the Bible in 24 hours. Think about that. And it's fantastic. So I was listening to it and um, just wanted to kind of talk about the book of Romans. Now, the book of Romans, of course, written by Paul. It's one of the most phenomenal books in the New Testament. It is an absolute book of logic and reason, uh, point by point, step by step. Uh, they, you could actually use it in a law school in how it argues its points. And uh, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, of course, writing it, it's a fantastic book. So if you want to break the book up, here's one way to do it. If this is the entire outline of the book, uh, it's actually quite easy. You have the prologue or the opening. And then for the next uh, few, you'll see um, condemnation before God is essentially up to chapter 3. 1 through 3. Justification from God is chapters 3 through 5, or 4 and 5, sorry. Sanctification is 6, 7, and 8. Election is 9 through 11. Uh, you can also title that um, the history of Israel. And then 12 through 15, 13, you have service for God. And then 15, 14 through 16, 27, you have the epilogue. So if you want to sort of break out the book of Romans and package it nicely, you can do it like this. So, for instance, if you were to, like we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, you could like in your mind say to yourself, well, that's the sanctification section of Romans. 
if you want to say, well, in Romans chapter 4, we talked about Abraham and David, well, that would be the justification section of Romans, right? Put it in its place, and therefore you understand what Paul is arguing when he is discussing. And if you look at how this looks, it walks right through salvation, does it not? The tenses of salvation. Because it talks about condemnation, that all men are sinners. It doesn't matter Jew or Gentile or pagan. It does not matter. All men are sinners. And, of course, uh, Romans 3.23, for all the sin that come short of the glory of God, that kind of summarizes it. And then you have chapters 4 and 5. How is one justified before God? How does one receive the righteousness of Christ? And that is by faith. And that's where you will get the passage from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. That is tucked in there. And then you will go, how does a Christian become more like Christ? And that is the sanctification section, right? That's uh, what that is all about. And then Israel, you have their past, present, and future, 9, 10, and 11. And then you have practical ways to serve uh, the rest of the book. So that is a way that you could break up the book of Romans quite easily and have it all nice and good. Uh, that's the way my mind works, being like a design engineer. I have all the, the cards and the, the things, and everything's in order, and it's got to fit. And that's just how I think, and it's really cool, and I like it. So I hope you like it too. Um, the next thing is we're going to outline chapter 8. So we're going to walk this path. Um, I did not use AI to draw a path in the wilderness. Um, but we're going to walk this path, and I've got to talk to Larry about that. But we're going to look at four different things. We're going to break this up in four different sections. We have the liberation from the flesh. We have the realization of our sonship. We have the preservation of our suffering. And we have the admiration in his victory. So we're going to break up Romans chapter 8 like this. First 11 verses, then 12 through 17, then 18 through 30, then 31 through 39. Now, let's just pretend for a moment that we're an eagle or a hawk. I mean, eagles are bigger. Let's, let's make it a bald eagle. Let's just, let's just go big. Go big or go home, right? And you're flying over the earth, and you're looking because eagles have great vision. They can see probably up to two miles and they're looking and they're saying, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to go drop down there and see what's down there and get, you know, a thing or a rat or a mouse or whatever and eat it. And then they get up back in the air and they're flying. They say, oh, there's a lake. I'm going to go fishing. And they come down and they get a fish. Then they go back up and they say, oh, I need to feed my family. So they go down and get something else. It's kind of like what we're going to do. I'm not, we're not going to go in depth in this chapter because there are so many verses to it. We're going to do a flyover. And when there's something interesting, we're going to touch down, land, park. Uh, talk about it, and then uh, go back up and look at it some more. All right, is that good with you guys? Yes, it is. Thank you. Appreciate it. And by the way, you can nod your head. You can say amen. You can do all kinds of things to acknowledge that you're alive and breathing out there in the land. So let's compare what I thought was actually pretty cool. is comparing Romans chapter 5 to Romans chapter 8, okay, because they're actually pretty cool. So Romans chapter 5 is a summation of the saving work of Jesus Christ, right? It's a, what section is it in? You remember? Justification. Romans 4 and 5. Justification. 
Justification by faith is forever through the work of Christ. Right? To be justified before the Lord is the work of Christ. And that's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 reveals our relationship to God. How we come into a relationship with the God of the universe. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit is only mentioned once in, the chap- in chapter 5. And that's in verse 5. It's just mentioned once. He is. And then, of course, uh, the capstone of our salvation is in Christ. That is, if you want to summarize or have a summation of Romans chapter 5. Now, let's compare it to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, you have the summation of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. So it moves from the saving work to the victory that is in Christ. Uh, Sanctification by faith is ensured by the Holy Spirit to where We talk about justification by faith in Romans chapter 5. We talk about sanctification through the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. It reveals our relationship to the world, conflict, and the flesh, which is different because in chapter 5 it reveals our relationship to God. One is how do we get into that relationship, and then chapter 8 is how do we live in that relationship. Uh, The Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times in chapter 8, 21 times. Who are we supposed to be leaning on in our walk with the Lord? The Holy Spirit. He who dwells in us, who seals us until the redemption of the purchased possession. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And it is the capstone of our sanctification and victory in Christ. So you can see the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 8. It's phenomenal. Okay, The focus that you have between the chapters. And you could probably do this uh, with other chapters if you wanted to. So, um, let's kind of press on. I know people are jotting down notes. Um, but let's talk about Liberation from the flesh. This is our first section. It's in verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. You, what we see here is the laws of life and death. And it starts out, there is now... Oh, and one thing I did want to say um, before we even get started. I, I love the bookends of chapter 8. Chapter 8 comes with its own bookends. Do you know what they are? For the Christian, the first bookend in verse 1, is you will never be condemned. Never. And the last one is in the last verse, and that a Christian will never be separated from Christ. There's your bookends of chapter 8. Isn't that phenomenal? It speaks of the fact that we have eternal security. When you are in Christ, you will never be condemned, and you will never be separated. That's chapter 8. So now, everything that comes in between there goes right along with that. Right? So, when we start in the um, verses 1 through 4, it starts off, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And I like what the King James does, where it says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's verse 1. Verse 2. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of 
set me free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he has condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here, Paul first brings out the argument, there are two laws at play for the Christian. One leads to death. One leads to life. You can actually walk in both of these. Because we have our new nature, the nature that we are given through Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and we have our old nature, our sin nature, which will not be removed until the rapture of the church, which, by the way, I believe, could happen at any moment, and even closer than we ever expected. I think we are closer than ever before uh, to, that, to that moment, to that event. Um, so you can actually walk in both of these, but he argues this way, um, there's not, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we have been set free. The Spirit of God has set us free to be able to walk in this newness of life and not walk in death, the way that leads to death. We have been given a way and the power to walk in life through the Spirit that he has uh, given us. Now, it's interesting, the law, because of our sinful nature, overpowered us. And that's what it was meant to do. It was meant to show you how weak you were, that you could not keep it. That's what the law was meant to do for the sinner, that we are weak and we have to realize that I'm only going to end up dead. That's all that it can bring. It does not bring life. It says it was weakened by the flesh, weakened by the flesh. My flesh does not help it at all. It doesn't add anything to it. And that is reflected on what Christ has done by this life that he has given us um, who fulfilled the law. That righteous requirement of the law that we could not fulfill, he fulfilled. Because we couldn't do it. Not in the flesh. Not in the way that we were. And not if we give up walking in the spirit, but walk in the flesh. Because we could certainly do that if we so choose. Uh, we don't want to do that, for sure. We want to stay away from that. We want to always walk in righteousness. We want to walk in life. So he sets out and he starts out with these two, life and death, and kind of says, hey, don't walk in death. That's the old way. So the question I have is, how are we walking? How is our life today? Are we walking in the newness of life, or are we walking in the law or the deeds of the flesh that bring death? That's something that you, me, need to reflect on and ask ourselves that for ourselves. Next, what Paul will do is he will talk about the mind of the spirit and the mind of the flesh, right? 
he's moving through an argument. He's moving through a direction to bring you to a goal, a mindset, a place of life that is worthy of the calling that Christ has called you to. And away from the thing that Christ died to free you from. So now he talks about the mind of the Spirit and the mind of the flesh, starting in verse 5, where it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you through the body, though the body is dead because of spin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So he moves from one side of the argument to the other. He starts out by saying, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In fact, if you live in the flesh, you cannot please God. In fact, if this is who you are, you can never please God. Before you were saved, before you were justified, you could not, by anything that you could do, please God. All these people who say to themselves, well, I'm going to use the law to be righteous before God, or I'm going to do these good works so I can be righteous before God, whatever, go to church, give money, you know, serve as a deacon, whatever, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, if you are not justified, you cannot please God. All your righteousness is as filthy rags to Him. It means nothing. And in fact, it means death. In fact, it means you're an enemy of God. You are actually at enmity with God if your mind is set to fleshly things. And remember, he's arguing here in the sanctification section to Christians. How, are, how is your mind set? What is your mind on? Is it on fleshly things or spiritual things? And this is funny because I was just reading, uh, there's a gentleman on Twitter who was arguing that, uh, he was arguing sinless perfection. That we as Christians, because Jesus Christ did not sin, uh, we don't sin either. Uh, wrong. We have a sin nature still. That's the battle we have in us. We still do. We still struggle. We still fight. We still battle. But he is saying, our minds need to be set on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Because the things of the flesh are death. Just like the things of the law bring death. Right? You can see he's starting to separate wheat from the chaff. What brings death? What brings life? For you, Christian, we need to reflect on that. 
if you set your mind on the flesh, verse 6, it's death. But the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. He's beginning to change to the other side. The, those whose minds are on death, they can't submit to God's law. Those whose minds are on the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit, you want to do what God wants you to do. And that brings life. And I love what he says in the second part. It says this, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You must be born again. And the Bible says that when a person is born again, when they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, asking for the forgiveness of sins, the Bible says that not only does he forgive you of your sin, it says the Spirit comes to dwell in you permanently, permanent residence. And it says here, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not his. So all these, there's a lot of people in the world who would call themselves Christians. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and we went to church, and we didn't know. That's not how a person becomes a Christian. That's not how a person receives the Spirit of Christ. But for those of us that do, it is eternal life. That this, the very last part of that he who raised Jesus from the dead, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. You can have the security that when you die, he will also raise you from the dead. He will give you eternal life. You will live with him forever. It's a promise. It's a huge promise. Which one do you choose? Death or life? Which mind do you have? Death or life? That's the question for this section. It's liberation from the flesh. You want to know how to be a son of God? Liberate yourself. Set your mind on the things that are above. And then we want to realize our sonship. We want to realize our sonship and and we're going to get to um, an interesting verse in this section, a verse that's very familiar to us, but we're going to hear a different understanding. So we are debtors to the Spirit. Uh, verses 12 and 13, by the way, you know what a debtor is? How many of you are in debt for something? House, car, yeah, Julio, business, right? Well, listen to what... Uh, Paul says here, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the first thing he says is you're a debtor. You owe something to somebody. And who do you owe it to? Well, you can owe it to the flesh, but if you do that, you'll die. And he says, don't do that. You need to be a debtor to the Spirit to do what He wants you to do. Being a debtor to the flesh, owing the flesh anything, only brings death. That's it. We are debtors to the Spirit who indwells us, who gives us life, who leads us to life. That's what He is talking about. That's what He is saying saying 
in that section. And then he says, we are led by the Spirit. By the way, how many times is the Spirit mentioned in this chapter? How many? 21. Very good, very good. You were listening. I'm, I'm excited. That just makes me smile. Verse 14, we are led by the Spirit. It says this in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You want to know what it means to be a son? Follow the Spirit. Obey the Spirit of God. Listen to the Spirit of God. Read His Word. Pray the Lord for understanding. And then walk in it. We are led by the Spirit of God. We are debtors to the Spirit of God to do what He says, to do what He wants. And then we are adopted by the Spirit, and that will end this section in verses 15 through 17. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now, it begins in verse 15 where it says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You received the spirit of God. We are not to live in fear or live according to the things of this world. We have been given a new mind, a new heart, a new start, a new direction, new vision, a new hope, a new home. So which direction are you walking? Are you walking away from it or towards it? What spirit are you crying? And we've also received the spirit of adoption. We have been adopted into the family of God. We were a part and outside of the family of God before we were saved. We were not in the family of God, and now we are. And because we are, we can cry, Abba, Father. Now, what is the normal understanding of the word Abba that everybody always says? Daddy. That's incorrect. That's actually incorrect. The Greek, in fact, Chris talked about it, didn't he? He actually did. It's vocative case, and it's used for the person or persons directly addressed. Let me give you an example. I could say to Brad, hey, Brad, I could say, where are you going? Or I could say, where are you going, Brad? I could say, Bob... I submit the following evidence for you to look at. Or I could say, here's some evidence. It's a direct reference to a direct person. And the word translated means father. Basically, you're saying to your father, you are my father. It's not a tender word. It's, I'm in a relationship. This is my father. It's very interesting. Look it up for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But that's what the Greek word translates to. Father. We are his. We cry out to our 
Father who is in heaven. The Spirit also bears witness that we are children of God. And as children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and we are going to suffer. If you're his and you're walking according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, the world is going to hate you. And as well it should, because it hates light. And it loves darkness. It hates what God wants, and it loves what the devil wants. Um, anyone with a brain who is watching anything going on in the world today knows that we are seeing more and more and more evil, more and more wickedness. And it's out in the open, it's in your face, and they don't care. By the way, in Detroit, do you know that we have a satanic temple in Detroit with a statue of Bahamut standing in front of it? Did you know that? We have that. It's down there. Why would they even allow that? It's gross. But yet, Satan is flaunting himself in every place and in every way. And they want the things of God out permanently. Well, they're going to get it, aren't they? But not in the way they thought they wanted it. Uh, the rapture is going to come, and they're going to have seven years under the control of the Antichrist, and there will literally be hell on earth. Literally. Through, by peace, it says, he destroys many. He will destroy nations, he will destroy kings, he will destroy kingdoms, he will destroy the Jews, he will destroy the Gentiles. I would not want to be alive during that time, period. Thankfully, we won't. We're going to be in heaven, right? Because Jesus, when he went away, he went away to prepare a what? A place for us. And where he goes, one day he's going to come back and take us there, that where he is, we also may be. That's a promise. So, but while we're here, let's be led by the Spirit. What do you think? Let's know who we're following. We are sons of God. Sons of God. Uh, how about preservation in our suffering? Now, this section's going to have a lot of groaning in it. Oh, man. Just like listening to Bill preach. Oh, man. You know what I mean? That kind of groaning. Sighing. Murmuring. Uh, just very interesting. So 18 through 22, where it says, For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not com worth comparing with the glory that is to be real for us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected, subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage, from corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul then talks about, he jumps off of the fact that if you're a child of God, you're going to suffer. And he says, but these sufferings that we go through are nothing compared to the glory that's coming. Yeah, I mean, it's your life, and it's 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, and boy, oh boy, I'm going through real trouble right now. But guess what? This is a drop in the proverbial ocean 
compared to eternity, it's nothing. Now, when you're going through it, you're like, it's not nothing. This is, this is me we're talking about here. It's like, you know, do you even care about what I'm going through? Yes, and God does too. But it's nothing in comparison to the glory that we will uh, have one day. And even the creation groans. Even this world uh, that was created perfect, right? God said it is very good. Uh, and then sin entered the world. And sin is everywhere. And even the creation itself uh, groans and travails because it is under that curse. Waiting for something. Waiting for someone. Waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Waiting for Jesus Christ to return with his saints to set up his kingdom. The, the earth itself is in the universe is waiting for the revelation. Is waiting to be freed from this burden that it's under. That Adam started way back when. And it says, uh, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And that uh, word there is sustenazo, and it means to travail in pain together. Uh, We travail in pain until our bodies are redeemed, and the creation is groaning with us because it's waiting for us and our uh, liberation because then it will be liberated also. The creation groans for its liberation. We groan, don't we, also. We also, not just the creation, we do it too. Verse 23, it says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So he starts out and he says, it's not just creation that's groaning, we groan. And that word there is stenazo. It's a little different word than the word in verse 22. And it means to sigh, to murmur, or to pray inaudibly. It's a word that kind of is a, it's like, there's no vocabulary, there's no word, it's just a noise, or it's, or it's inaudible, it's something inside, it's an inner groan. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this body, I'm tired of this earth, I'm tired of this sin, I'm tired of the way I am, I'm tired of the way things are going, I'm tired of the direction of the world, I'm tired of this, I'm sick of it. I am groaning for that day where my body will be redeemed. I'll receive my glorious body. That's what he's talking about. It's not just the earth that groans. I groan. You groan. Christians groan. I want to go home. I want to go home. So believers groan for their adoption. And then the Spirit groans for believers when we cannot. Uh, Verses 26 and 27. So he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, there are people out there today that believe that you have to have a special prayer language, like a spiritual heavenly prayer language that nobody else knows but you and God. Uh, and they use this verse, like speaking in tongues. Isn't it interesting uh, that the word groan here is the same? It's, uh, it's the word from stenadzo. It's stenagmos. And it means the same thing to travail and pain together. But this time, it comes along the Spirit as it intercedes, as, as he helps us in our weakness with words, groanings too deep for words, or um, words that cannot be uttered. Did you understand that? When the Spirit speaks, does he need to speak through your mouth to God? I thought he was like the third person of the Trinity. Can't they just talk together without you hearing it? Yes, he can. When he intercedes for you, it's not through your mouth. It's not a spiritual, heavenly, angelic, you know, tongue language. Wrong. He's interceding for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. When you are groaning so much, you don't know what to say. He prays for us. Because this life can be overwhelming. And then, uh, knowledge of God's purpose. We have it in 28 through 30, where it says, <clears throat> if I can find it. And we know, verse 28, that those who love God, all things work together. All things work together for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. How's that? For those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, called, he justified, justified, he glorified. It goes in steps, the process of your salvation. And let's just say I'm not a Calvinist, I will never be one. But I want to just focus on one thing, and it's the word predestined. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And every time you see the word predestination in the scriptures, that's exactly what it means. God, from the foundation of the world, predestined all those who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will become like his son. In a small way or in a big way. And at the end, when you're glorified, it'll be permanent. That's what it means. It's eternal security again. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Right? It's his work started in you. It's his work to complete. But as we're reading, you need to walk in the middle of it. Right? You need to walk rightly between the two points. And so we do. And then just the end of chapter 8, we're going to talk about no one can be against us. Right? Because remember the book ends? No condemnation, no separation. Eternal security. No condemnation, no separation. Verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us also all things with him? 
graciously. In other words, who is against you? Well, the world's against me. Well, that guy who hates Christ is against me. Well, the Satanists are against me. The New Agers are against me, right? No one is against you because no one has a chance of winning. That's what we're talking about. You ever hear the phrase, one with God is a majority? Right? You often hear people say, we're two or three gathered in my name, there am I in the midst, right? That's great when you're standing in judgment over another brother. That's what in the context. One with God is a majority. That's the absolute truth. Who is, who is against you? It may seem like everyone's against you, but nobody is. Do you know why? Because Jesus wins. Therefore, you win. The only one I would be worried about if he was against me is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he was against me, that means I'm going to hell. But we're sons of God now, aren't we? So that whole relationship has changed. And therefore, no one is against me. Because I'm with him. Right? My daddy's bigger than your daddy. That's absolutely true. My daddy can beat up your daddy. My daddy can beat up everybody. Got it? I'm just putting it in plain language so everybody can understand it. It's simple. It's easy. It's not theological. It's not all... No, 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 no. no one can condemn us, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was the one who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is it that can condemn you now? Who is it? What does verse 1 even say? Do you remember verse 1? What was the, what was the bookend? No condemnation. Who is it that condemns you now? Now that you are a son of God, does God condemn you? No. And if he doesn't condemn you, no one can. No one. You're his. And by the way, we already heard that the Spirit intercedes for us. Now who else is interceding for us? Jesus. Our Messiah intercedes for us also. He's our advocate. When that roaring lion roams about and the sons of God went in to see God and Satan went in also and accused Job, right? He does the same thing to you. He's the accuser of the brethren. And when he goes before God and he says, hey, look at Julio, that scuzzball. Did you just see what he did? And God's like, yeah. And he turns and his son, Jesus Christ, goes, yeah, but I bought Julio. He's mine. And then Satan goes, oh, well, what about Nathan? Nathan did that thing over there. Did you see him? And the father looks at the son and he goes, I bought him too. Stevie? Oh, he's, yep. Nate? Uh, Josh? Yep, no, he's mine too. Ryan? Oh, no, he's mine. I, he's, Satan's like, I give up. I'm out. Right? We're his. No condemnation. None. He bought us, we're his, we're heirs. And then lastly, right, the other bookend, no one can separate us, 35 through 39. 
where it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. None of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, as is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That was true in his age. That was true through most of history. America is an anomaly in the history of how Christians have been treated. 37, no, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, death, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Now, some people will go, oh, but you know what? It doesn't say me. It doesn't say you in here. Right? It says everything else, but it doesn't say you personally. So I could separate myself from the love of God. Aren't you and any other thing in all of creation? Yep. Absolutely. I can't even separate myself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I can't lose my salvation. He argues here, there is no separation from Christ. None. What a chapter. What a chapter. Isn't it fantastic? I love it. So Paul really blesses our socks off. The Holy Spirit drives this home to us. You are Christ's. He bought you. You are an heir. The creator of the universe is your father. And you will be like Christ one day. It's guaranteed. So then, what mind do you have? And what law do you follow? That's the question. That's my question to me. And that should be your question to you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for a time in your word just to dissect it and go over it and see it and realize what we have in Christ, realize the security that we have in Christ, realize the power that we have through the Spirit to walk accordingly, to not give in, not let go. And we are thankful that you never let us go. You are always with us, and you always will be. Lord, help us to realize our position in Christ, the power that is available to be able to do what you want. And let us just listen for the leading of the Spirit in all things. Thank you so much. Bless our time together uh, afterwards in our fellowship. We just give you thanks and praise. We want to say that we love you for all that you have done for us and all that you will do for us. And we can't wait for you to take us home. And we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.